0: Al Jazeera podcast. It's been a very sad couple of weeks for Turkey, for Syria, and probably for many people around the world. I was actually in Turkey when the earthquake struck. I was safe, but I felt the fear and the worry for my friends closer to the earthquake zone. Al Jazeera assigned me to cover this story, and I've got a level with you guys. I'm sitting right now in a car in the earthquake zone doing this show from the heart of the epicenter of the second earthquake in Kahraman Marash. So you'll have to forgive us if the audio quality is not up to the usual standards. You may hear some sounds and some noise as the search and rescue and recovery teams get on with their work. To be honest, it's hard just to take in everything that's happened around here. I've been in earthquake zones before, in different places in the world, and I've been there at the very time the tremors struck. I've felt the buildings shake, I've fled in fear with others, and I've seen the destruction. But the level of devastation this time is something I haven't seen before. Hello and welcome everyone to the Essential Middle East Podcast. I'm Sami Zaidan. At the time of recording, more than 37,000 people have died in Turkey and Syria. The number is going up every single hour. The ground shook and within seconds, millions of lives were forever changed. Well, the destruction appears never-ending when you drive by in a car. It seems total in some parts of the earthquake zone. The relief effort is underway, but make no mistake, recovery is going to take some time. The level of devastation shocks your senses to the core. There were more than 1,800 aftershocks in Turkey. Just take a moment to think about that. Here's Turkey's foreign minister, Mavlu Çavuşoğlu.
1: Those two earthquakes are one of the worst in our history, with 7.7 and 7.6 magnitude. And 10 regions, provinces affected, 13 million people. And I think everybody saw the scale of this earthquake and the damage as well.
0: Before we speak with our guests, let me tell you about something I did earlier. I went out to Guzeliel, neighborhood in Adana city, I had heard people were camped out in the street and I wanted to speak with them. I've come to a park. There seems to be a lot of people gathered out here. I see fires lit, which makes me think they're planning to stay the night. There's a playground and a lot of children are playing. Someone is even dressed up as a clown. It looks to me like the community is trying to get together themselves, trying to ease the burden on themselves and they're planning to stay here for a while. I suspect these people are afraid to go home.
1: I felt a great
0: fear in the earthquake. It is very difficult. We are outside right now. We are in tents. Maybe it would be better if there was a container. We are afraid right now because we don't know how much damage it took. Because many buildings collapsed, there are cracks in my house. We
1: have been on the street for nine days. We need psychological support right now. I'm staying in the tent with my daughter-in-law and my son. I swear I'm very bad psychologically. I am old and cannot go home. I don't know if there is damage to my house. There is no one in the houses, the neighbors are gone, I am alone. I'm scared, I'm 86 years old.
0: Stories are similar when you talk to people, the young and the old. They're afraid, out on the street on a cold night, staying warm by fire because to them it feels better than being in a home that has become a place of fear for them. It's time to bring our guest into the show and try and understand where the relief operations are at.
1: This is Didem Demircan. I'm the coordinator at Oxfam KEDV in Turkey. I'm based in Istanbul.
0: Lovely to have you with us, Didem. First of all, give us a sense of how bad the situation is.
1: It's a big geography of 10 provinces. Unfortunately, buildings totally collapsed and we know that there are people maybe under the collapsed buildings Unfortunately, the rescue option or the rescue possibility is very low at this moment, almost none. We also know that there are 60,000 injured and we also expect this number to increase.
0: In fact, I think it already has, Didem, I think the last number I heard was officials were saying over 80,000 have been injured. So that number clearly going up and going up fast.
1: Exactly. 80,000 at least injured And many are in the area, they don't want to leave their houses, even if their buildings did not collapse, they want to stay in the area, but they don't want to get into their houses. So they're staying outside.
0: Some people are too afraid, aren't they? They're too afraid to go home in case it happens again, or in case the houses themselves, the buildings might be damaged.
1: There are many buildings that are damaged, even if they didn't totally collapse. Many buildings are damaged and there are still many aftershocks that are being expected that will be over magnitude of four. So this means that even if you cannot see if the building is damaged or not, there is still the possibility that this building may collapse because there are also not enough engineers at the moment on the ground that can analyze whether the buildings are safe or not. People prefer to stay outside rather than getting into their houses. And there are still families that are waiting next to the collapsed buildings for their family members or friends to be taken out of these rubbles.
0: And I'm seeing them. I'm seeing them, Didem. They're around me right now. I've been walking around. I see people camped outside, sitting by the rubble, saying, My cousin's in there, my family are in there. It's heart-wrenching really to see all of this.
1: This is a big trauma for these people. They have given up hope to save their loved ones. They just want to take their bodies and bury them.
0: Why has it been so deadly?
1: First, It was a very big earthquake and the second one followed a couple of hours after the first one and there were aftershocks, big aftershocks, even like as big as the magnitude of six.
0: Does it also have to do with the depth of the earthquake, how close it is from the ground surface?
1: Exactly, it was close to the ground surface and it affected 10 provinces, so Turkey was not prepared for such a big earthquake hitting such a big geographical area.
0: Why? And that's the big question, isn't it? Because Turkey is not a stranger to earthquakes. There are regulations, building regulations, to take into account earthquakes, aren't there? Was any of this overlooked?
1: Yes, apparently they were overlooked. After the 1999 earthquake, we have all the regulations in place we have very good engineers and academicians that were presenting reports about that area. But unfortunately, the agencies, the state agencies were overlooking all these reports and apparently they were giving permission to buildings that should Mm. have not been giving those permissions.
0: How important is it as well when we talk about earthquakes in terms of the duration of the earthquake?
1: That's also important, the duration is also important, and these were quite long earthquakes. And it was not only the buildings, the infrastructures were destroyed, airports, roads, hospitals, schools, even buildings that should have been standing up during such a disaster like hospitals were damaged. This, of course, had an impact on the operations that were tried to be carried out after the disaster. Because the airport were destroyed in Hatay, the flights could not be made and transportation had to be done from other cities. And this caused delays in reaching to the people who were affected by the disaster. And I guess
0: also the location of the epicenters, that's a big issue. And the places I've been to where I am right now as I speak to you in Kahraman Maraş, it's clear the epicenter is in a very populated area.
1: yes the most crowded city centers were affected but if the buildings were safe then that wouldn't have happened
0: they should have stood there's a lot of there's a lot of questions about that. How is the health sector coping do they have enough facilities do they have enough health workers are they able to deploy them to all the places?
1: That's a big geographical area, that's also what we are trying to explain. So it is covering 10 cities and 13 million people were affected. So that's a big population. The health services from the very first minutes, of course, the doctors, they were organized and they tried to get to the area. but. Unfortunately, as far as we hear from the field, and we see in the field, is that the field hospitals were set up quite late. The doctors were in the area to support, but unfortunately, there were not enough medical supplies or medicine.
0: Was that a failure by the authorities? Officials have admitted to shortcomings. Is that the sort of shortcomings that you're seeing? Was there a delay in deploying teams?
1: Unfortunately, there were, and what we see now in the field is if you try to centralize all these operations, too much centralization doesn't help. If you try to accumulate all the aid coming in, in only a number of big warehouses, then try to distribute from those places, then this doesn't help. There needs to be more decentralized approaches in how you gather and distribute the aid that's going to the populations in the area
0: and was there too much of a push at the beginning to try and centralize the response
1: there was but after the elaza earthquake a group of ngos which we are also a member of a part of we formed the national disaster relief platform And we came together as 27 NGOs and we started cooperating with the state agencies. So we were able to at least make sure that every region, every area in the earthquake zone is reached with the relief or with the aid that's needed.
0: Here's Turkey's Foreign Minister Mevlüt Çavuşoglu.
1: We have been receiving support and humanitarian assistance from 97 countries. 16 international organizations offered their assistance. And currently, there are 64 countries on the ground, search and rescue teams, I mean. And in total, more than 7,700 foreign personnel on the ground.
0: Could you give us an idea of the role which NGOs are playing? How big a role are they playing? How much of an international presence is there from international NGOs and aid groups?
1: So the national NGOs have been playing a big role during this time. We have this national platform and 27 NGOs are members of that. So they were very active in... First, getting the information from the field about collapsed buildings, about people under those buildings, and then making sure that this information reaches to the rescue teams on the ground. Then getting the assessments from the ground and then making sure that the organizations that were providing these aid get that information and organize their aids in line with those needs. They are also active in the AFAD warehouses.
0: AFAD, of course, let me just explain to listeners, that is the government agency that coordinates all the relief efforts, right?
1: Yes, and our platform has been working in cooperation with AFAD. So our volunteers are in the warehouses. Our volunteers are in the area trying to transport the needs or try to make sure that the needs are distributed to even the most remote places that were affected.
0: That's the national NGOs. Look, this is maybe a good point for us to take a quick break, but we'll be back with this interview from the earthquake zone shortly.
1: This week on The Take, a look at how the war in Ukraine has changed Poland and how Poland has changed Europe.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Is Turkey getting enough international assistance? Because it seems just looking around like this country will need a lot of help.
1: Yes, so it the first starting from the first hours international rescue teams started coming in which was great solidarity from all around the world we had rescue teams And they saved so many lives from the rubble. So that was a great example of solidarity from all around the world. In addition to that, we know that many INGOs are now raising funds in their countries. They are trying to make sure that our voices are heard. They make sure that the media contacts with the NGOs on the ground. And they support us in having our voice heard internationally. And so they are organizing some campaigns and we are also telling them that this is going to be a long-term rebuilding process in those areas. So we will need funds for months and maybe even years. It will take a long time to rebuild these cities, to rebuild the lives.
0: So since we're talking about the relief efforts, what are the hurdles? What are the challenges still facing The relief efforts.
1: So some people are still moving out from the cities so they will be rebuilding their lives maybe in those cities so they will need some long-term support and we know that some people will prefer to stay in the affected areas so in those areas we need to make sure first of all that they have the necessary shelter And even basic things like water, toilets, showers, sanitation, because we know that even now there is a lack of toilets, of showers.
0: And I've seen that. To be fair to Afad, the government relief agency, they're putting up, I think, as fast as they can facilities like that. But there are still queues. I went to a bathroom and a shower room yesterday. We had to queue up and wait. There's simply a lot of displaced people.
1: We need to make sure that the numbers of these toilets and showers increase. And we need to make sure that we set up proper shelter for the people who prefer to stay there. It cannot be tents. It needs to be maybe prefabricated buildings or containers. And we need to make sure that they get all the support while they are staying in those temporary shelters, psychological support or education. There are many children that will be out of school for some time. So we need to make sure that these children are supported and people will need to start at some point going back to their work.
0: Try and resume some kind of normal life. Didem, I want to ask you for your assessment of the search and rescue efforts. How efficient were they?
1: Unfortunately, there was a lack of equipment, we know, and generators and electricity. And this, of course, unfortunately, did not allow the rescue teams to operate at full efficiency because they didn't have the necessary equipment provided to them in the area. That caused some delays in their operations. But we know that there were around 100,000 rescue people in the area, so that was a very big number. They worked tirelessly for hours without sleeping to make sure that they could get out as many people as possible from the rebels.
0: And as I walk around, I see a lot of displaced people. In fact, the president said, If you add up all the numbers, It comes to something like one and a half million people have been put into different types of shelters, whether it's temporary shelters, whether you're talking about schools. But how long can people stay in places like this?
1: We were in the area when Marmara earthquake happened in 1999 and we know that the first thing set up were the tent shelters and then people were moved into prefabricated and container buildings and after that permanent residences were built for the people and they moved there. But of course it will take months, a couple of months, until these permanent residences can be built.
0: Could the earthquake have been predicted
1: the time and the day cannot be predicted but we knew that a big earthquake would hit that area sooner or later
0: so were the right precautions taken then didem if we knew generally that a big earthquake was coming
1: there were preparations since 1999 the states have been putting in risk assessments, response plans, pad was set up. So there were many preparations that were being made. But I think the scale was too big that some of these plans may not have been enough for such a scale. Mm. And we are also expecting this to happen in Istanbul sooner or later. We are expecting an earthquake in Istanbul, most probably a magnitude of more than seven we need to make sure that all the precautions are taken immediately for Istanbul and other earthquake-prone areas in Turkey. The Turkish government announced arrest warrants for those they're holding responsible for thousands of buildings that have collapsed.
0: There have been some arrests of people linked with construction companies and so on. How far is this going to go? Because one assumes that if buildings were poorly constructed, that will also raise some questions about the authorities which were supposed to oversee the enforcement of building regulations.
1: Exactly. So, of course, there are responsibilities on both the building contractors and also the state authorities that were supposed to control those buildings and give them the permission to start a life in those buildings
0: are we going to see some heads roll
1: let's hope so because this is gonna set an example in fact this has been done in 1999 as well after the 1999 earthquake some contractors were arrested but look at where we are now
0: there have been a lot of promises made to rebuild but that's going to take a long time isn't it
1: it's going to take a lot of time. It is not easy for a building to be rebuilt. And in addition to that, it is not easy to rebuild the life. We had many people that had their own shops, their own businesses, their own agricultural production activities in the area, and people, children going to schools, university students. So rebuilding all parts of life in those cities will take some time. What
0: about what the president spoke about, which was hundreds of thousands of buildings, which he says are now uninhabitable. There's a lot of repair work to be done, not only rebuilding stuff that's completely rubble to the ground.
1: Exactly. So we know that 6,500 buildings totally collapsed, but maybe three, four times more of buildings are not in a condition to be used. So... What will happen to those? Then maybe they will be totally to collapse and rebuild, or maybe, as you are saying, they will be repaired.
0: Where is the resources going to come from?
1: The country has been collecting earthquake tax. Some resources need to come from that fund because that was exactly what it was collected for from the Turkish population. So there needs to be some resources there. And in addition to that, we are expecting... A lot of international funding coming to support all, all that work.
0: And you mentioned their rebuilding lives, and that's so true. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a young man who was sitting besides a building where he used to live. He told me he buried his nephews. And when I asked him, how are you taking all of this in? He said, I'm frozen. My feelings are frozen. I can't process this. And it occurred to me there's a lot of mental rebuilding that's needed, isn't there?
1: Yes. This is one of the biggest tragedies that we've lived in the country's history.
0: Are people going to get that kind of help? Because let's be honest, in the East, it's not always, not every culture in the East is very open to talking about psychological trauma that you face in life.
1: Yes, but this needs to be provided to the communities there because this is not a trauma that can easily be overcome. You need to get support for that. And we know that the psychologists and psychiatrists in Turkey, they have already organized support to go to the area and they will be providing volunteer services in the area.
0: right, Didem, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening, guys. This episode was co produced by Khalid Sultan and our intern Nada Shakir. Sound design was by George Alwir. Our engagement producer is Ayel Malik, and our assistant engagement producer is Munir Dosari. The executive producer, of course, is Omar Al-Saleh and Ney Alvarez is head of audio. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, it's goodbye.